back, everyone, to Out of the Main. This is the first interview of Season 5, so very excited to do this one, John, for more than one reason. You know what the other reason is. Did Do, do we even the score today? Bass players to drummers? We've been keeping a rough tally. We do, right? We did, yep. Ah, so right. we have to welcome our guests. We're uh, evening the score with my brother and co-host here. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's bring them on, John, without further ado, shall we? What are you, what are you scoring exactly? Uh, well, uh, ag- uh, aggression or, or intellect? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Just quantity. Quantity. Um, I'm, I'm a drummer at heart, and Tom's a bass player at heart, and we've had dr- uh, drummers on, and we had a, the drummers had the lead for a while, and now we're up, the bass players have finally caught up. Yeah. Roaring comeback. Thanks to today's yes. guest, Neil Stubenhouse, who, um, listeners to this podcast will recognize that name. It's been uttered many, many times. But for those who have just tuned in for the first time, we have somebody who has performed on more than 600 albums, Mm. of which more than 70 have been nominated for Grammys, and more than 20 Grammy-winning songs, and the bassist on 60-plus gold or platinum albums. This is incredibly uh, our honor to welcome Neil Stubenhouse. Hi, Neil. Thank you for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Great. Well, um, what's keeping you busy these days? We follow you on Facebook, and my heart was a flutter. I told you off air that we saw a picture of you with John Robinson, and it was, uh, I thought, a session. So are you out there recording? That was a session, two days of um, sessions. Um, I think I sent you his name. It, um, the, mem- the memory is not as good as it was when I was 40. Uh, really nice guy who writes his own songs, and... I think um, could afford to have the best musicians, and he hired Greg Phil and Gaines mm, to, to mm-hmm. do. Uh, we did four tunes or five or six, and but four that we all played on, and it was kind of thrilling to get you know be in the same room with musicians again. The overdubbing and the and the tracking, you know, via digital is it's not really my thing. Uh, I not because not because I don't want to keep active and make you know make some money doing it, but. Mm-hmm. It's not fun, and um, and I'm not that good at it. I'm my talent. I always thought was um, very specific, which is that I'm influenced by whatever I hear around me, and I and I come up with what I play in the moment, and it has to be inspired by the music and the quality of the music and the quality of musicianship, and and if it's in my wheelhouse musically which is which kind of eliminates you know certain genres heavy metal or what have you I'm, there's other guys that are much better at that and um and that's what i do so that's not the, it's not fun to me being in a room being in that room with greg and dean and Tarek and jr um and, and um and kevin the percussionist that's is thrilling to me the music the music can be can be you know not not the next steely dan it doesn't really matter greg makes it great because he's he's a genius and uh everybody that i just listed they're all they're brilliant they just you know it's what it's two takes max i'll put it that way we could we run it down a little bit and then by the second take it's perfected so that's what could be better than that i grew up on that and i'm not used to all this other nonsense of playing something 20 times from a track and overdubbing on it and making it. And everybody's already used to what they had from a computer or another bass part. And very rarely do they say, just go and, and then hear what I do and don't influence me by another, another bass track. 
and and if they let me go i'll do my best if this if the song really brings in you know creativity if it's you know not not anything that thrills me or it doesn't make sense i'm not good at it there's other players i think that are better at that so I, I was looking at your roster of um, you know artists you've played with, and I can only touch on a few of them. But it, what interested me about it was the range of calls that you got back in the day, and then the ones that you worked with, you know, very regularly. So you know, we've got Gino Vanelli, we've got uh, many Streisand records, which I want to ask about. Quincy, of course, has called you. Uh, I saw your name on Juice Newton records, so a little different thing there. Anita Baker. George Benson, John Clemmer, the jazzy thing, Neil Diamond, the more easy listening thing, and Clint Black, True Country. Um, the question that came to mind with all of that is, do you see yourself then as sort of a chameleon type of bass player that you can go into those different genres and fit in? Or is it more the case that your sound, your style, just fits with these other people and you don't have to necessarily adjust what you do? You know what I mean? Do you, do you mentally take on a new persona when you go into these other styles, like a Juice Newton or Clint Black, say? Um, not really. Not really. But you adjust to everything. You adjust to everything a little bit. You read the room. You read. You want to see if, you know, the first thing you, you see is, are they looking for simplicity? You know, like you do a, you, you work with a guy like, like Peter Cetera that I worked with years ago. And he's such a simple player and a simple thinker that I automatically kind of figure no extra notes. No, or, or as Miles would say, no butter notes. You know, just don't do it, whatever that ever really meant. Um, yeah, you read the, you always read the room, but the first, my first instinct is to give them everything I got. That is me. And I can tell pretty quickly if they don't want that, you know, if that's too much or you never know. Sometimes they're just thrilled. I mean, I played on so many sessions in the early days where they told me nothing or they passed out a chart that had a baseline that looked just either boring or dated or wrong to me. And I and my first instinct is ignore it. So I go into the session, I play something completely different. And if they light up with a smile and say, wow, that is awesome. Or they say, that's way wrong. Stick to the paper. Then, then you refresh your thinking and you start, you know, and you play it. I mean, I've been, I had been in sessions years ago. Um, Diana, what's the, what was the blind artist? Diane, Diane, sure. And I went, instinctively played what I thought was good. The arranger hated it. He said, play the notes on the paper. I started playing the notes on the paper. He hated it. The producer stepped right in and said, let Neil do Neil. And this is, a, this is, I'll tr make the long story short. It was great. And he was wrong. And he ended up being a teacher at Berkeley 30 years later. And my daughter was a student there and he told her the story that I heard him and that he had written blah, blah. I changed it. We had a little, uh, you know, confrontation about it. The producer was Andre Fisher. He stepped in and said, said, let Neil play Neil. And, um, and he realized that, you know, he's a great, he's a great arranger and I'm, and I'm an instinctive bass player. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, a, a John Patitucci or any of these Cork 
you know, Carlito, I, I can't play that kind of fancy stuff. I don't do that. I just play what I hear and feel and try to keep it as simple as possible and add a little, a little bit of personality to it. And, um, and that's, that's, that's the long and short of the answer to your question is that, you know, everybody's different and you have to read the room. And sometimes, sometimes you go left and they didn't want that. And sometimes you go right. They didn't want that either. They went straight ahead. So you read it. You mentioned Berkeley. That's a, a name that comes up a lot on our podcast as well. So uh, John actually is also a graduate of Berkeley College of Music. So my understanding is you graduated in 75, I think. And from what I read, there is where you met Vinnie Caluda and John Robinson. Is that right? And Steve, Steve Smith, Smith and Mike Stern and 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 uh, and, and Jeff, Jeff Lorber. Lorber and Jeff Richmond and Bill yeah. um, Frizzell and and a million great play. I mean, it's it's really uh, astounding from that particular class. Uh, I did not graduate. <clears throat> my my base teacher that I was assigned to uh, after I switched from from an upright major to electric, and Gary Burton brought Steve Swallow into the fold, <clears throat> and Pat Matheny. You know, then everybody, of course, uh, Steve Swallow and I became good friends. Reminds me, I have to email him. Um, and not close friends, but we talked more than we, I didn't even, I barely played the instrument. He took a liking to me and, and started sending me to all of his ensembles when he left and going on the road with Gary Burton. So that was was my second year of school. And the third year, uh, Steve was leaving and Steve told the bass department, Neil should be, should be the teacher that replaces me. There were 40 applicants. Um, I think the fix was in. I never asked. The fix was in. It was me. Swallow said, Neil, and the applicants were all kind of, um, I mean, fair or not, I, I, I would, I would default to not, but, um, I got the job and I started teaching there and I was no longer a student. So I never graduated. I went, I went two years and I taught, and then I taught for two years and the two years that I taught, all, they didn't really have an electric bass player specialist. They had upright players who played electric. So they were guessing. So I was really the first one. I broke the ground on electric being, you know, and and Stanley was hot. Jocko was just starting to show up with Pat. They'd come to town. We became friends. And that was kind of the Berkeley connection. So all the students by the second semester all switched to me, all the electric bass players. And we studied Jocko and we studied Stanley and we studied, you know, all those things that were brand new and fresh and incredible. But that's that's my Berkeley story. I taught for two years and I was a student for two years. They gave me a, an alumni, uh, whatever that is, award, you know. That's cool. That's wow. I, I would say you, you sort of did graduate if you get right from, you know, go work from student to teacher. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean I, it was, you, you, you can't learn how to play at Berkeley, in my opinion. You need to know how to play. You need to be really good and get better at playing, but not learn how to play from nothing. Everyone who wanted to learn how to play took lessons with Charlie Benakis, who was on, who was down the street off of Com Ave, and everybody studied with him. They were playing John Steps in six months. Wow. You don't really, so at Berkeley, you learn, you kind of learn at the time, it's all different now, but you learn what, what um if music is for you and and if you stay then you learn all big band and orchestration and the real serious music stuff which seems 
to be absent from the world these days, thanks to uh, some politics back in the 80s that killed arts in the schools. There's mm -hmm. no music in schools anymore. Yeah. Everybody thinks Taylor Swift's a genius. <laughs> I'm going to reserve comment because I have no, nieces I and nephews. Well, uh, she's, she's she's a great entertainer, and she writes a lot of good uh, good songs um, that that appeal to uh, age groups. And um, and I am in awe of her for what she's accomplished. And uh, and anyone else who's writing music, you know, who actually has a bridge to the song, you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't listen to it, someone but. else just said that to us. I don't well, that exact same thing about a bridge. I forget who it was. Uh, was it Don Brightup? Another. It Berkeley? was Don Brightup. Yeah. It was Don. It's, any, it's anybody. Yeah. Listen, listen to any song now. Right. There's no bridge. Yeah, I know. Nobody, nobody knows how to write music. I, I, um, if I have, if I'm going to point a finger, I, um, I would combine the fact that there's no arts in schools is, is, uh, is tragic and criminal to me because because people think those are the top artists um and i blame you too because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. they, they were the first group that was same four chords for the verse the same four chords for the chorus no bridge no bridge people made fun of steely dan <laughs> what did that tell you right yeah you're making you're making fun of the of the most the most brilliant you know, one of the one of the most brilliant uh, songwriting team in rock and roll, and executed. You know, add Sting and and add uh, you know all the great the great songwriters. There's never no bridge. Right. <laughs> well, you, you, <laughs> tune. Listen to every Beatle tune. Every bridge in every Beatle tune is brilliant. It 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 diverts from from the basics of, basis of the song lyrically and musically. It could change key. It does anything. And that's a real song. Every Beatles song, every single Beatles song is a real song, a well-written song. And that, and that and then went and went down the line. And all those songwriters are great. I mean, I worked for Backrack at least 50 times or more. Songs are genius. Everything. And there's always a bridge. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned Steely Dan because the question I had teed up is how do you then just give us the history from your teaching in Berkeley to right. eventually you become this prolific session player in L.A. How did you get from one to the other? Uh, luck and timing. I mean, you know, anyone who tells you that it was just pure talent, you, you still have to have the, the luck is having if you have instincts, then you're lucky to have good instincts. It's it's not a it's it's um. I don't know the environment that creates that, whether it's, you know, upbringing and parenting and your environment. But <clears throat> my instinct was just, you know, like a lot of the musicians who made it further is take everything, play with everybody, everybody, just keep doing it. You you know, I didn't go to Berkeley to, to learn how to play. I already knew how to play. I went to Berkeley to be in a town that had a condensation of a zillion musicians and there's no work. 
So that's money. Money and work is not the name of the game. And all these people come to LA and go to Musicians Institute or whatever. They get fixated on the world of work around them and they see it. It's not their fault, but they see it. And the questions I used to get asked in the 80s was, How's he, how do you become a studio musician? And my first instinct is, well, get out of here. Learn how to play. I don't know what to, to say. I didn't know what to say because you have to have the instincts to, to interpret everything and be wide open. So how did I get here? I, um, a couple of steps along the road. I, I met a lot of great musicians in Boston. Uh, I was playing and teaching and, and uh, Mike Stern called me and said, they just fired the bass player in blood, sudden tears, which happens happened a lot, frankly. And, and Jocko had Jocko did it for a couple of months and he recommended me and they hired somebody else and he didn't get along with somebody. I don't really know the backstory. So Mike calls and he says, the first gig is Saturday. It was like a Wednesday. Oh, okay. You know, here the plane, boop, boop. Where are we rehearsing? We're not rehearsing. Okay, fine. So I got to some gig with them and, and it went on for eight, nine months. And I just played and they loved me. They never told me ever what to play, ever. And I was spoiled by that. I always have been because I don't take directions that that well if I don't think that they're they're helpful. So Blood, Sweat, and Tears led to the band disbanded because the sax player OD'd in Amsterdam and, and died, and the band just stopped for I don't know how long. Went back to Boston. The drummer called me. He said, we're going on a little tour with Gap Man Joan. Gap Man Joan is Chuck's older brother, plays piano, and they assign, and Chuck got Gap a deal on AM because Chuck was on AM. Larry Carlton was assigned to produce Gap's record. So Larry produces Gap. I go on the road with Gap with Bobby Conamo, the drummer, and Mike Stern. Mike and Gap get along as, as well as Oil and Water. And that that ends like that. We did one week and Mike hated they they didn't they didn't get along. So Gap books another gig in Denver. And I get to Denver, and it's Carlos Rios on guitar and Tommy Campbell, a drummer from who I knew at Berkeley, on drums. And that's the band. And uh, and Carlos is mind-blowing. This is 1980, no, 78. And Carlos is just mind-blowing of a guitar player and the sweetest guy on the planet. And we did a week there uh, opening up for Bill Cosby. Nicest guy I ever met. <clears throat> Not and uh, and Carlos said, you know, Larry Carlton, who's kind of my idol, is is um, is putting a band together to tour his first record. He said, and I think you should audition for the band. So I said, yeah. So our last gig of that little mini tour was at the Roxy in L.A. Uh, on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> so that Larry came to the gig because he was because he produced gaps record and he wanted to uh, it was a saturday night and i was booked to go home on sunday and larry put a, a jam session together with me and john farrell greg matheson and larry at larry's house on sunday i auditioned went flew home to boston and he called me and he said you got to move to la 
I want you to join the band. And he had auditioned all the guys that, that were whoever in LA. And I said, um, and I was already shopping New York because I had already met, you know, the Brecker brothers, and Dave Sanborn, and all these people who said, you got to move to New York. Gotta move. So I'm looking at it around and it's looking frightening to me. Just, just uh, the, the idea of being there and getting used to the city. And, um, and, and us, and when Larry hired me, <clears throat> he had a friend, he had a friend who was buying up real estate because real estate was cheap back then for rental. And his friend who I had met years ago in Vegas named Willie Ornelas, Willie was, uh, was, uh, had replaced Jeff Picaro with Sonny and Cher. So Willie's in Vegas. I'm in Vegas with little Anthony Imperials. I meet Willie. He's got a house. I spend 10 minutes meeting Willie and and uh and looking at the place when i went to la real quick to to just find a place and boom i i took it so i moved to la and i go on the road with larry that's that's the transition you had a uh a quote in one of your interviews about that uh, getting to la and you um here was you said the big shock of my career was getting to la meeting jeff percaro and changing my entire outlook on music realizing how brilliant these guys were out there so what about meeting Jeff and getting in with that, uh, those West Coast musicians? What changed your outlook? Well, here's the background. Background is I'm an East Coast guy. I'm hanging around with Steve Smith and Vinny Caliuta, and we're listening to, you know, the, the newest Miroslav Vitas record. You know, we're listening to the Miles records that go back to Tony Williams and everything, and, and we're just fascinated with growing musically because all that stuff was a thousand miles more advanced than than your average your average rock and roll or what have you and um and that was our world so all the records i looked at record brothers records lead you to you know you see steve gad harvey mason you see i mean harvey actually didn't count because he was la but you see steve and you see willie and anthony jackson and and um chris parker and the and the players that are new york and that's all you think is that these are the guys these are playing the they're playing the creative stuff it's advanced it's not it's not the the simple stuff but the but and you're ignoring the west coast which is boss gags but everybody loved that stuff those are the tunes we're playing you know on the on the gigs playing playing uh music for for the for the everybody's and it's good stuff but i'm never looking at the credits because there's nothing that jump out jumps out at me like listening to 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 Gad and 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 Anthony Jackson playing together, which is just mind blowing. So that's where we're all going. We're all going to the advanced stuff and ignoring the West Coast. And so I just wasn't I wasn't paying attention to it. My bad, but I caught it in time. But when I get I get to L.A. and I realize all these I don't even know their names. I didn't know Jeff Jeff's name. I didn't know anybody. I never looked at the names of the records because everything sounded not just perfect, but not it, nothing stood out to me. I wasn't thinking like that. And I, and I got there and, um, things fell in place. I started doing some television dates that Larry turned me on to with Mike post. And in those Mike post sessions, I walk in and there's Victor Feldman playing vibes, Victor Feldman. And I'm, I'm looking at it like this. Are you, are you kidding me? And, and the players that were taking sessions, you know, uh, I'm looking around and, and, and then there's Tom Scott in the horn section who I knew about and, and, and others 
it was and Pete Chrisleeb and these guys that were on the records. And it was mind boggling to see this. They're all making a living going to these playing Magnum PI for, for, for an hour and a half, you know, I'm seriously uh, one after another, after another, the Rockford files. I mean, I wish I could have saved the music sheets that I had, but we're blowing this out at eight 30 in the morning and leaving at 11. And it's, and it's, and you're never going to hear it again. You're going to watch a television show. If you can hear the music over the car or the <laughs> motorcycle, then good luck. Um, but you know, they perfect everything on television. We perfected and moved on. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether it was, it was, uh, chips or, or the Dukes of hazard. It's still in the famous, in the words of, of Tim May, it was a giant pad for a, for a car solo. <laughs> we perfected everything on Dukes of hazard week after week. And when you watch it on TV, it's a car solo. It's vroom, 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 with music in the background with Larry McNeely playing these brilliant banjo solos and and JD uh, JD playing this, these steel <laughs> solos. It's insanely great. You'll never know. You never mm-hmm. know. So, so the reason I mentioned that is because Tom Scott heard me, didn't say a word. He heard me on one of those sessions <clears throat> and I got a phone call. I went on the road with Seals and Crofts. Um, I met the guys when we opened up with uh, for them with Larry Carlton. <clears throat> and I was doing just a couple of weekend gigs with them. And my wife calls and she says, Tom Scott just called. He needs you at the studio tomorrow with Richard T and Steve Gadd. My heart's pounding. Wow. So I call him and I say, I'm in, I'm in San Francisco. I can't, I'm, I have a gig. I can't go. He said, all right, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> there goes my career. It was over. It was over. I just blew it. Yeah. And uh, you got to be right there. When 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 lightning strikes, you got to be right where the lightning's going to strike if you want to get if you want to get burnt. So um, he he did call back, and a few weeks later, I went to the studio and I got there, and and there's Jeff sitting there, minding his own business, just getting sounds, just playing a simple beat. And the session was about nine to twelve hours long. We went tune to tune. We actually changed the songs entirely. And that's the moment that you're asking about. I connected with that. And it was like, it was like the sun coming out. This is what they're talking about. The simplicity and the musicality was beyond brilliant. It was indescribable. And that was, and that's what I, that's, the long answer to your short question. Wow. That's wow. Well, go ahead, John. Well, uh, no, you go ahead. I, I have I a follow up because yeah, yeah, it's something completely different. So go ahead because you mentioned Jeff Picaro. I mean, yeah. if you look at all of the names that you've played with, it's it's literally everybody, right? So. As a former bass or yeah, former bass player is probably the best way to say it. Myself, um, I played with. I see it right there. Yeah, I, I still have it. Yeah, it doesn't play anymore. Um, no, sure. It does. Um, that's the definition of a, of a bass player, myself included. We own a bass. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so I, I've noticed that there's certain drummers that you drum with or that you play with that the groove is just instinctive and it's magic and it's not even really work. And then there's others where you just 
I can't make this happen with this guy. So since we know some of the names, if you're willing to divulge, is there a guy or two that you just clicked with automatically and it just was the perfect fit for you and your style? Yeah, for the most part, most of them. Um, I mean, Jeff was Jeff is going to be number one, but that ended it tragically in the 90s um, or 89. I can't even remember what year it was that ended um john robinson uh, vinnie i mean i really tried to help push vinnie break into in, into the studio world because vinnie had a reputation of being you know too good um and arguably you know it was it was an adjustment to to learn the simplicity that i already i didn't have the, i don't have those kinds of jazz chops so vinnie has every chop in the world so those are the those are the magic guys, you know, Jeff and Vinny. And I connected with um a lot of other I really connected with Harvey Mason on a lot of things. Not necessarily every record that wasn't necessarily up either of our alleys, but um, but for the most part, when we were just fooling around together, we did the Academy Awards for a couple of decades. And and the and the music that we played during the breaks that nobody heard was sensational. And I always jammed with Harvey. So there's so a lot of them. You just connect. And if it's real, if it's just musical, you know, then it's you can't beat it. Can't beat it. But Jeff, Jeff is the one who clued me into that. And I, you know, I did great before I got to I connected with with most of the drummers I played with before I got, you know, in the studios, too. They're all good. You know, you just have to really the when you're playing music that you both like, it's easy. If you're interpreting a, a, a song or a piece of music that you that you never heard before and it's not a hundred percent intuitive and then you're in your wheelhouse, that that's where it's more challenging. Some drummers, you know, and bass players connect more than than others. For that, yeah, matter. you probably so. had to have a as you were, I guess, alluding to um, sort of a realization or a learning curve that you realize that those musicians on those records that you, you know. I'll say ignore in quotes because you didn't intentionally do that. But when you got out there and actually started playing with them, you realized how much how much chops they had to sort of keep in the locker in order to be able to play on these pop records because you know they the producers wanted boom bap and you know they didn't want jazz chops on a Streisand record, right? So you learned that these guys were that capable, but there was an art to doing it in this context. It's not necessarily keeping, keeping the chops in the locker deliberately. It's we're musicians. This is the music. This is the song. And this is what it calls for. You're a good musician and you have the instincts or, or you think it's about you. It's not. I mean, you know, and I can give you, I can, I could give you, I'll, I'll leave names out, but you know, there were bass players who were really accomplished players who really wanted to break in to make a living. And, um, and they'd call me and ask me to recommend them. And they, nobody realizes in the eighties, the business doesn't work like that. Recommendation is very rare from turn from a, from a, any player turning down a session and saying you should hire so-and-so because you're not speaking to the people who are hiring anyway. If I get a phone call in the eighties, it's some, it's an answering service. Are you available for this and such and such at 10 AM? Um, no, I'm no good on that. Okay. They have a list. They have seven people. That's how I broke in. I was number seven. 
So everybody broke in. They're number seven, they're number eight or number 10. And they go down the list and everybody's working. So boom, that's that's the default. And then they make a discovery if they like you and lists start to fluctuate. That's kind of the way the whole thing works, like in life. So it's it's real it's musical instincts. To answer your question, it's really instincts. It's not about the chops. If this ballad calls for this amount of whole notes, your instincts tell you, there's the intro, don't play. First verse, do I play or do I add a note? Maybe don't start off not playing. If it sounds like you're supposed to play, play some whole notes, half notes, something like that. A high note, enter. First chorus, play, get it, get it going. Don't, don't play fancy, nothing fancy. It is not about you. It's the song. So you're servicing the song, no matter how you slice it. Think of a restaurant, you know, there's, there's, they want, they want to the people to love their food. They'll make little adjustments. They'll do whatever they need. Oh, you want it medium rare? You want it, you know, you want this, 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 you want the sauce on the side. So you're thinking the same way you're servicing the song and you're making the song great. And we interrupt this podcast to bring you this commercial break. Actually, it's not a commercial break. It's just a break. All right. Well, uh, as we uh, so often do, we get to talking to these fine musicians um, and we uh, lose track of time. So we got to break it up into two episodes, which we're going to do again today. So we will take a break now, get to our lightning round part A, and then conclude our conversation with Mr. Neil Steubenhouse next week. Lightning fire. Woo, doggy. Okay. All right. So found at sea. Uh, You got one? I do. Okay. Um, the the one thing I just wanted to point out to people, which we can't cover on this podcast, is do a um, do your research into Neil's vast catalog because there's a lot there, mm-hmm. um, and it's a lot of different t- uh, kinds of styles. So I'm not going to go into all of that today. But what was interesting is one of which is uh, being found at sea. Remember when Kenny Rogers was found at sea? And a lot no, of the I, what, what do you mean? Well, let me explain. Okay, that 1986 album produced by Jay, Jay Green. Green. So yes. it's trying to be yachty. It's 1986, so it's a little yeah. after the fact. Imitative. But a lot of the yacht rockers <laughs> love that album. Really? So yeah, uh, not the rockers, but the yacht rock you know fans okay. of the audience. So, anyways, um, it's not exactly on the mark for me, but I do like certain things about it. So I wanted to point to the album is called. They don't make them like they used to, uh, which is true. And Neil Steubenhouse plays on the title track, which was written by Burt Bacharach, Carol Bayer Sager, and it sounds like this. However, the reason I wanted to bring up that album, because talk about being found at sea. So I'm looking at this, who's writing all these songs, and you've got Randy Goodrum, and you've got Jay Graydon himself, but track three, three called You're My Love is written by Joey Coco. I'm like, who's Joey Coco? <laughs> I know where this is going. Click on the link. <laughs> and Joey Coco is a synonym for, or sorry, a pseudonym for, 
Uh, it's got to be Prince, right? It is yeah, Prince. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Prince has been found at sea on more than one occasion. He uh, has. Yep. Certified yacht rocker Prince. That's how I refer to him. I wonder what time of night uh, Neil had to record those bass parts uh, with Jay at, at the helm. <laughs> yeah, good question. <laughs> yep. All right. What have you found at sea? Well, I went looking and decided to just do a quick search and see what came up if I posted um, uh, in search Neil Steubenhaus's greatest bass lines or something to that effect. And I found in one of the forums, I don't think it was Talk Bass Forum, which I know listener Mike likes. It was another one. But anyway, um, several people had commentary. Most of them were things that maybe we already knew or talked about. But this one caught my attention. And the, uh, the guy gave a little bit of a write-up and he said, this is like, maybe he's a music critic. Uh, but beginning with a main theme based on the root, fifth, and sixth, Stupid House is playing exhibits both precision and groove. He plays with an articulate attack during the verses with short notes to add a bounce-like feel to the song. Opening up during the choruses, he extends the length of his notes, um, adding slides and accents, and he gracefully leads the band through the changes. I like that. Uh, while the tonality of this record is quite a departure from the Temptations classic Motown sound, it certainly is not lacking a sense of groove and dignified bass playing. This is uh, Temptations 1986, and he's not kidding when he said it doesn't sound like the Motown sound. Uh, the album was called To Be Continued, and the song he was talking about is called You're the One. Yeah, there's Neil uh, with the Temptations, well, such as it is. Yeah, and it, like I said about his catalog earlier, and you brought up during the interview, is that uh, he is able to be a chameleon and kind of jump around into yeah. different uh, sounds and genres. So. There were some extra um, personnel of note on that. I should point out that uh, Paulino DaCosta on percussion, Dan Huff is on guitar. I uh, can't tell because it doesn't have track by track. It's either Vinnie Caliuta or J.R. Robinson on drums. Sounds like J.R. to me. And it's mixed by Mick Gazoski of uh, Chuck Mangione and Daft Punk oh, yeah. uh, era. Yeah. yeah. All right. Buried so that treasure. moves us into buried treasure. Well, I don't feel like um, we we quite delved into the Streisand connection enough with him, <laughs> right? Uh, well, because there was obviously she is not Yachty. Obviously, she is not even a rocker. Um, but. The session musicians and the producers brought her along at times, even though her vocal stylings still sound a lot like I can't get like her singing cats out of my head. You know what I mean? It all sounds yeah. very Broadway. Yes. Um, you should but, hear her sing uh, my favorite things at Christmas time. Yes. Ooh. But not this one. This one uh, has uh, obviously Neil on bass. Uh, let's see. Jay Graydon and Jeff Baxter are your guitar players, Bill Payne on piano. Uh, let's see who else. Greg Matheson is the arranger and keys player. It's written by Bruce Roberts and Paul Jabara, who I don't know. Uh, but this is her doing a disco duet with Donna Summer. And there's some wicked bass in this. This is uh, No More Tears, Enough is Enough.
So did you expect to find any real pure disco in Neil's catalog? I did not. Well, now I don't know what to expect because I'm discovering that he's everywhere uh, all at once. Here, there, and everywhere. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, so far we've had some sort of yachty-ness. We've had the Temptations, which kind of Motown. Now we're at disco. I'm going to bring us into more of a country realm. Ooh, okay. Because my buried treasure is the album, the rest of the catalog that you don't know about Joey Scarberry beyond... Mm. Yeah, uh, Greatest American Hero, which okay. has come up before on this podcast, but I For think sure. the album is so worth delving back into that I wanted to delve. And yeah. uh, it just so happens that Neil Steubenhouse plays bass on this record. He does. However, so does... Lee Sklar. <laughs> Lee Sklar. And you don't know who's who. It well, yeah, they don't tell you song by song. They don't right. tell you song by right. songs. I'm going to guess and hope that he played bass on the song. If he didn't, good job to Lee Sklar. <laughs> this is called When She Dances. When She Dances. Everything you're thinking of And she can make you fall in love When she dances That album is a buried treasure The entirety of it, yes All good, every bit Yep. What's your guess? Is that uh, Lee or is that Neil? If I had to guess... I might go the other way and think Lee. Okay. I'm saying Neil. Okay. So Neil, send us a message. Or if anyone knows, hit us up in the comments. As Please. They say. All right. I'm going to let you go first on uh, final thought because I want my final thought to be the final thought. Mm, you're kind of p- pinching me into a corner here. <laughs> well, because my, mine is going to have to do... I told you that this season may have some more uh, cliffhangers to come. Oh, we started we, with the... Or we ended last season with a cliffhanger. Um, we're moving into more cliffhanger territory. So at the end of this first episode with Neil, we were talking about how his transition from New York uh, persona, not not just learning, but all the stuff he was listening to, the, the heavy fusion stuff, the Jocko stuff, you know, Chick Corea and uh, all this other super challenging stuff. And the stuff that was coming out of the West Coast at the time to him wasn't making any impression on him. He just, as he said, nothing really stood out to him. It wasn't until he got to L.A. and started getting into some of these sessions and playing with these guys. And what would happen when the session was over and there was still some time left, the guys hadn't torn down yet, Mm -hmm. and they would just jam together. And he's like, ooh, these guys can play, right? Yes, sir. So I'd asked him about keeping that stuff in the locker. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, realizing now that there was a place where you could keep all of that stuff under reins, but still use some of your special sauce that maybe you picked up from Jaco or whoever to en- enhance your playing. And he expounded on that. And um, I sort of had a contrary opinion to the way he answered the question. So I... I I'm going to leave it there. Next hmm. week, come back. I hit him with a counter argument to what he said, and then you'll get to see how he responds and whether he like stormed out of the interview or not. <laughs> well, we know he didn't. Because, well, maybe no, he did. not necessarily. We'll find out. Yes, that's why it's a cliffhanger. Could be an extra long lightning round next week. Uh, I'm picking up on what a cliffhanger is now. Okay, um, for my final thought, uh, <laughs> funny little stories. I had all this stuff selected because I wanted to showcase um, Neil's slap bass a little bit because mm-hmm. he doesn't do it a lot. Mm-mm. And I either lost my notes or I never took down the notes, and I just had open tabs on a browser that I was planning to come back to. And now I'm like, oh, well, 
was it? So I'm racking my brain. I resort to emailing Neil. I'm like, Neil, send me some of your slap bass. He's like, there's not really a whole ton of it. But he sends me a couple tunes, um, one of which is a Tom Scott song. And I'm like, that's it. Yeah. But it wasn't that Tom Scott song. I remember listening to Tom Scott's Flashpoint album. You even brought it up at one point, I think. I did. Also from 1986. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the tune I want to play. So here is a little of... Coast to Coast. So, then I come to find out, for some reason, I'm going through an old text thread, and it turns out that listener Mike sent that song to us back in November of 2022 <laughs> to listen to. <laughs> so, Prior to our research. So yeah, it fell on deaf ears because you didn't have context. Now I, you do. I, well, I, yeah, I did, but I guess it's turning 52 or, you know, in the brain. The memory's not all there. But So is this found at Seaburied Treasure or Final Thought? This is my final thought because now I'm going to allow Mr. Neil Steubenhaus to have the final, final thought and let's let him play out coast to coast. Ahoy, ploy. (laughs) 